0: Good morning, one and all. It is a pleasure, a privilege to be with you, and I invite you to take God's word and turn with me to Paul's second letter to the Thessalonians. Paul's second letter to the Thessalonians. Many of you have asked, are you settled after two months? The short answer, yes, we are, we are settled. And it is indeed good to be back in Texas. It's good to be back with you. We would covet your prayers. We are taking off a week from tomorrow back to Ontario, uh, preaching at a family camp up there and a couple of other speaking engagements. And so pray that that goes well and the Lord uses our time up there. And then we return home here August the 8th, just in time to start a very busy semester And so, yes, we would appreciate your prayers for us as we always pray for you. Quick question. Just before we turn our mind's eye, our attention to 2 Thessalonians, quick question. What comes to mind when you hear the word marvel? Now, some of you kids and probably one or two adults You're thinking comic books, you're thinking movies, all right, just put that aside, all right? (laughs) Other than that, what comes to mind when you hear the word marvel? Some of us probably think in terms of a landscape, the Grand Canyon, still sore about missing that trip two or three years ago, but uh, the Grand Canyon, perhaps, a marvel to behold. Some of us think in terms of uh, music, Handel's Messiah, what a marvel. Art, Sistine Chapel, a person, an individual, Malachi Randall, what a marvel. And all these things go through our minds as we hear this word, marvel. We find it in Scripture. The term marvel, marvelous, marveled throughout Scripture. We go, for example, to Exodus chapter 3, and there is Moses, that pillar of faith, with his sheep, actually his father-in-law's sheep, in the wilderness of Midian, and they are close to Mount Horeb, the Mount of the Lord. And Moses, day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year, how monotonous with these sheep, same brook, same mountain, same rock, same tree, same bush. Hold on a second, something different today. There's a flame, a fire in the midst of the bush, and yet the bush is not consumed. Stephen tells us in his sermon in Acts chapter 7 that Moses turns aside to look and he marvels. Fast forward to the New Testament, Matthew chapter 8, for example. Christ is with his disciples in the boat in the midst of the Sea of Galilee, and he is fast asleep. Suddenly, the waves begin to rise. The wind begins to blow, and before the disciples know it, they are in the midst of a tempest. These are hardened, seasoned fishermen who have spent the better part of their lives on the sea. This is no ordinary storm. They awaken the Lord Jesus, crying for help. And with a word, Christ rebukes the wave and the wind. And there is a great calm, and the disciples marvel. Go into Luke chapter 24, and there we read in Luke 24 that the disciples are gathered, huddled together in secrecy. Suddenly the door bursts open, in rushes Mary Magdalene and several other women out of breath. Something about an empty tomb. Something about angels, something about Jesus, not there. Without another word, Peter bolts like lightning out the door. He's running faster than he's ever run before in his life. He's at the tomb. He's looking in, and what does he see? The linen cloths by themselves, and he marvels. To marvel. It is that experience that occurs when something amazes us, something astonishes us, something exceeds all of our expectations, something shatters our mental categories. Do you have it? A marvel. I'm going to read in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. I'm going to read from the very first verse right through to the end of the chapter, verse 12, you listen for the Word. It's in there. I might slow down and give you a big hint when we get there. But you listen for it, all right? Hear the Word of the Lord. Second Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians, and God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, as is right because your faith is growing abundantly and the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. Therefore, we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God for your steadfastness and faith in all your persecutions and in the afflictions that you are enduring. This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are also suffering. Since indeed, God considers it just to repay with affliction when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and, wink, wink, nudge, nudge, to be marveled at among all who have believed, because our testimony to you was believed. To this end, we always pray for you that our God may make you worthy of his calling, and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Surely you caught it, right? The 10th verse. When he, that is the Lord Jesus, comes on that day, What day, the last day, the day of judgment, when he comes on that day to be, purpose clause, glorified in his saints. It continues, and to be marveled at among all who have believed, because our testimony to you was believed. I don't want to spend a lot of time on this this morning. But try to imagine that day in your mind's eye, if you can. And what it is exactly we will see, if you can. What it is that we will behold. I I don't know for certain. Will it approximate John's apocalyptic vision in Revelation chapter 1? He is in the spirit on the Lord's day, isn't he? And he sees a vision of the resurrected, ascended, glorified Jesus Christ. And his hair is like white wool. He does not say it is white wool. These are similes. It is like white wool. His feet are like burnished bronze. His voice is like the sound of many waters, roaring waters. And his face is like the blazing sun. And he holds the stars in the palm of his hand. John falls down before him like a dead man. And then he hears the words of the ascended Christ, fear not, fear not. I am the first, and I am the last. Behold, I was dead, and now I live forevermore. Certainly it will approximate that, won't it? And we will marvel at the Lord Jesus Christ. Now there is so much in that. There is so much in this text that captures the imagination. And causes us to wonder. But you know what has really gripped me over the past few months? I have been immersed in this for a few months now. What grips me is as we move into verse 11, and Paul utters these words. To this end, we always pray for you. To this end, to what end? surely what he has just mentioned in verse 10. When Jesus comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed, because our testimony to you was believed, to this end, with this in view, with this before me, with this front and center, we always pray for you that our God may make you worthy of his calling. And may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power, so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him, according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. And so, as Paul himself contemplates that day, And as he leads the Thessalonian believers to consider that day, it naturally, effortlessly leads him to prayer. A prayer designed with this specific design. That end in view, our glorification, and what it will be on that day to marvel at the Lord Jesus Christ. And so what I want to do with you is unpack this prayer. And here's how I want to do it. I want to suggest to you that in this prayer, as Paul anticipates that day, he gives to us five reasons to marvel right now. We will marvel on that day. Five reasons packed into this little prayer as to why we should marvel right now. Now I just peeked at my watch. So here's what we're going to do. Five reasons why we should marvel right now. I will at the very least mention each of them, but I cannot promise that I will say anything about all of them, all right? We might just have to skim over one or two. We'll see how this goes as we proceed. But here we go now, kids, if you've got those notes in front of you, not very complicated. It's just one, two, three, four, five. Adults, it's not complicated. Each begins with the word God. And so you're just going to fill in that blank. Five reasons for marveling as Christians right now. Number one, God calls us to salvation. And so look at the prayer. Verse 11. To this end, we always pray for you that our God may make you worthy of what? His calling. The question that should be racing through your mind is what? What is the calling? Look at chapter 2. Paul leaves us in no doubt the 13th verse, But we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. To this He called you through our gospel so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so we marvel at this wonderful truth, reality. God calls us to salvation. The next obvious question is this. Salvation from what? Back to chapter 1. And back to those verses that immediately precede, precede this prayer, go all the way back to the middle of verse 7, when the Lord Jesus is revealed. It's horrific in its detail. When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire. This is a consuming fire. This is the fire that consumes Sodom and Gomorrah. This is the fire that consumes the sons of Aaron. When the Lord Jesus appears on that day, accompanied by his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. I think it was C.S. Lewis years ago. He heard a good report about a young preacher. So off he went to hear him on a Sunday morning, visit his church, hear him preach. And toward the end of his sermon, the young preacher grew very earnest and looked out upon the congregation and said to them, if you do not believe these things, you will suffer grave eschatological consequences. C.S. Lewis thought that was interesting visited the young pastor that afternoon and asked him, Sir, when when you warned us that for not believing these things, we would suffer grave eschatological consequences, did you mean we would go to hell? Yes, replied the young pastor. To which Lewis replied, Then why in heaven's name did you not just say so? Keep it plain, keep it simple. Here we stand on the great isthmus of life. Two eternities before us. Heaven and hell. Eternal life and eternal destruction. Blessedness and cursing. And here Paul leaves us into, in no doubt as to what will transpire on that day, the return of the Lord Jesus Christ, when he himself will make an eternal separation between the sheep and the goats. He will make an eternal separation between those who believe the gospel and those who disobey the gospel. The gospel, we just Boil it down in its simplicity. And the gospel is this, the all-sufficiency of the Lord Jesus Christ. That is the gospel. The all-sufficiency of Christ. He who knew no sin became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God. Two pivotal truths in that statement. He who knew no sin became sin for us. That means when I believe in the Lord Jesus, I receive the Lord Jesus. I look to the Lord Jesus alone for salvation. I become one with him through faith. And because I am one with him, as far as God is concerned, Christ has become sin for me upon Calvary's cross. And Christ has borne the penalty for my sin in full upon Calvary's cross. It is why we sing, my sin, oh the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, oh my soul. That is a marvel, my friend. That the Lord Jesus Christ, he who knew no sin, became sin for us. But there's more. Paul adds what? That we in turn might become what? The righteousness of God. Because you see, yes, we become one with him through faith. Yes, we are now knit together in indissoluble union. And yes, now Christ, God now counts my sin to Christ. Christ has carried that burden to Calvary's cross. He has paid the penalty in full. And now, wonder of wonders, marvel of marvels, God reckons and counts Christ's righteousness to be mine. It is why we sing. Christ's righteousness, yes, belongs to him alone. And that famous hymn, The Terrors of Law and of God. The terrors of law and of God with me can have nothing to do. Why? My Savior's, wait for it, pay careful attention. My Savior's obedience and blood, not just the blood, folks, My Savior's obedience and blood. My Savior's obedience and blood hide all my transgressions from view. He who knew no sin became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Friends, that is a marvel. Here is the second in this little prayer. God makes us worthy of his calling. So look again at what we read in verse 11. To this end, we always pray for you that our God may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power. What does that mean? God makes us worthy of his calling. Well, didn't, didn't you just say that we are saved in Christ alone? Isn't it true that we are saved by grace alone? Doesn't that imply that it has nothing to do with us? Our merit is of no consequence whatsoever, and yet here Paul the apostle of grace. Here Paul states, and states it very clearly, that God makes us worthy of his calling. What does he mean? Go all the way back to verse 4. Therefore, we ourselves boast about you, we exult in you. In the churches of God, notice what he says for your twofold description, your steadfastness and faith. In all your persecutions and in the afflictions that you are enduring. Into verse 5. This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God. That you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God. For which you are also suffering. Yes, you read that correctly. The Apostle Paul knows as well as anyone. That as Christians living in this fallen world, we are in store for suffering. And that Thessalonian church, as they found themselves in the heat of persecution and opposition, They endure, and Paul latches on to their steadfastness. He latches on to their faith, and he acknowledges that these make them worthy of the kingdom of God. Is there some sort of merit inherent in these things? Think for a moment. Is Paul suggesting that their steadfastness has inherent worth? merit that somehow earns God's favor is he suggesting that their faith is a work of their own doing and that in some way some fashion this faith catches God's attention and because of that God reckons them or considers them worthy of this kingdom think think expansively in terms of scripture Just think for a moment of steadfastness. You go all the way to the book of James, chapter 5, is it verse 11? What does James say there? You have heard of what? The steadfastness of who? Job. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job. No one like him under the sun. Immovable. A pillar, a pillar of steadfastness. A pillar of endurance. Really, was Job a pillar of steadfastness? Here's what we hear from the lips of Job. Let the day perish on which I was born. Let the day perish on which I was born. Why did I not die at birth? Pillar, bulwark of steadfastness. I am not at ease, nor am I quiet. He was impatient. He had his doubts, and he had his moments. James makes no mention of any of that. More to the point, God makes no mention of it. Think now of faith. Who comes to mind when you think of faith? Faith. Who's the pillar of faith in Scripture? It's Abraham. And in Romans 4.20, what do we read? No unbelief made Abraham waver. No unbelief made Abraham waver concerning the promise of God. But he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God. Abraham never wavered, really. It's Paul reading the same Old Testament I'm reading. Grew strong in the faith and gave glory to God. I have one word for you, Hagar. And that entire sordid episode, Paul makes no mention of it. And more to the point, God makes no mention of it. I am going to give you a single pithy statement. I beg you to write this down, and if ever I'm in your house, I want to see this on your refrigerator. (laughs) Here it is, from the pen of an old Puritan, I can't do any better than Thomas Manton. When the inclination of the heart is right, when the inclination of the heart is right, the infirmities, the failures of God's people are not mentioned. That is a marvel. Nothing meritorious in their steadfastness, nor in Job's. Nothing meritorious in their faith, nor in Abraham's. Nothing meritorious in our steadfastness, nor in our faith. Riddled with doubt, riddled with failures, riddled with struggles riddled with worries and perplexities and everything else. But friend, when the inclination of the heart is right, God doesn't mention any of it. He considers us worthy of the kingdom. He considers us worthy of the gospel. That is a marvel to behold. Here is number three. Fill in the blank and we're going to move on. It does build on number two, and for the sake of time, I'm going to just move right over it. Number three, lifted straight out of verse 11, God fulfills every resolve for good and every work of faith by his You can meditate on that later today. You can ask yourself, how does that that relate to what it means to walk worthy of our calling? But we are moving on to number four. Here it is. The fourth reason to marvel right now. God glorifies the name of the Lord Jesus in us and us in Him according to His grace. It's the 12th verse, so that the name of our Lord Jesus, notice the dual emphasis, may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God. I think the starting point perhaps to understand this is what Paul says to the church in Corinth. He tells them there that man is the image and glory of God, doesn't he? Man is the image And glory of God, and woman—I think it's specifically the wife—is the glory of her husband. What does he mean? He means a lot. At the very least, he means this, and perhaps an illustration would serve us best. You imagine for a moment you meet a young man. He's in his twenties, and he's—he's on the handsome side, and he is well groomed, well dressed, well mannered, and well spoken. And in the midst of the conversation, he says to you, I would like you to meet my wife. And he walks you halfway across the room, and you're a little shocked. She is twice his age. She is poorly dressed. She is poorly groomed. And she is downright ill-mannered. What's your immediate thought, your immediate reaction? There's a mismatch here. Why? intuitively, what do we expect? We expect his wife to mirror him and for him to mirror her. We expect a likeness. And so when Paul says to the church at Corinth, man is the image and glory of God, and yes, woman is the glory of man, that just as a wife, you you know this to be true, as a wife mirrors and reflects her husband's likeness, More to the point, theologically, it's a a significant motif. So, too, man reflects being the image of God, reflects and mirrors, therefore, the glory of God. But we all know the Bible story, don't we? And we know that because of our sin, we fall short of what? The glory of God. We do not fulfill the purpose for which we were created. As human beings, male and female, created in the very image and likeness of God with a very specific purpose that we might mirror and reflect His glory. Oh, but because of our sin, that image is marred. The mirror is covered with filth and we no longer in a fallen state reflect the image and likeness of our Creator. Oh, but look at the emphasis in this text. Look at verse 10, when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints. Look again at verse 12, so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you. Go all the way again to verse 14, to this he called you through our, chapter 2, to this he called you through our gospel, so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so what was lost at the fall and has been the human predicament ever since then, Paul tells us that this image is now being renewed in Christ and the day is coming. This is a marvel of marvels. I could mention names. I know you. And you know me. And I'll tell you, friend, this is a marvel that a day is coming When we will reflect the glory of God Almighty. it, It boggles the mind. It defies the grasp of the imagination. It is bewildering. I have some of your names going through my head right now. And you should have my name going through your head right now. Him? Yes, him. Her? Definitely her. We are going to reflect the glory of God. It is why we love the rags to riches stories, isn't it? We love Cinderella. Rags to riches. C.S. Lewis, kids, Shashta, Core, the boy and his horse, right? Rags to riches. New Green Ember fans out there. Smalls Joveson, rags to riches. Rags to riches, rags to riches. That is our story. John Nelson Darby put it beautifully. A couple of centuries ago, I can do no better. And is it so? And is it so? I shall be like thy son. Is this the grace which he for me has won? Father of glory, thought beyond all thought, in glory to his own blessed likeness brought. My friends, that is, a, that is a marvel, absolute wonder. And here is the fifth as we wrap it all up and bring it all together. The fifth reason to marvel right now. It's a short one, very simple. God is ours. God is our. Back to the prayer. Pay careful attention. To this end, we always pray for you that what? Our God may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power, so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Oh, just for the sake of emphasis, go right back to verse 1. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians in God, our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 2, grace to you and peace from God, our Father. And the Lord Jesus Christ. And on and on and on it goes. God is ours. Our God. Just imagine the phrase, the two words right there in your mind's eye. Our God. There is a twofold emphasis. Begin with the latter emphasis. Our God. Our God. Who is this God? Race back to the burning bush. There's Moses with his sheep. He has turned aside to gaze, and he's marveling at this, this thing which defies all explanation. And there is this fire in the midst of the bush, yet the bush is not consumed. Suddenly the voice, he hears it. Take the shoes, the sandals off from your feet, for the ground upon which you stand is holy. And he commissions Moses to go back to the land of Egypt. Moses wants to know this God's name. And it comes. And what is his name? I am. And what is God's point? What is he conveying to Moses? He is conveying to Moses this reality. I am the God who is. High above the heavens. High above the heavens. Oh, great is the Lord, the psalmist declares. His greatness is what? Unsearchable. I am. Incomprehensible. Infinite. When used in reference to God, not a mathematical term. put that out of your mind. When used in reference to God, a simple affirmation that He is without limitation. He is infinite. Oh friends, He is infinite. In relation to his being. We call that aseity. We need to invent words to describe our God. Because he is not like us. We call that his aseity. Unlimited in regards to his being. He has life in himself. He is not dependent on anyone. Or anything. Completely supreme. Completely independent. The great I am. Not only is he without limit in reference to his being, he is without limit in reference to space. Another big theological term. We call that his ubiquity, his omnipresence. Where is God? He is everywhere. He fills all places, yet is limited to none. And all things in all places exist in him. He is without limit. When it comes to time, we call that his eternality. A little while back, a college student asked me, he was trying to be smart. He wasn't. He asked me, what was God doing before he made the heavens and the earth? I have to count to 10 after I hear a lot of questions. In that case, I have to count to 20. What was God doing before he made the heavens? There is no before the heavens and the earth you talking about? There is no before or after when it comes to God. There is no prior moment. He's the eternal creator. All things exist in him. He is above all succession of time. He is without beginning. He's without end. I know we often talk about eternity past, eternity future. It's gibberish. It's meaningless. He dwells in one indivisible point called eternity. That's what he's saying to Moses. I am. I am. I am the one who is our God. Dual emphasis. Back to the possessive pronoun. Our God. Back to the burning bush. And there is Moses before the bush. And God declares his name to him. I am. Why does he declare that name? Yes, to convey. I am the God who is. But it's more than that. He says to Moses, I am. Yes, I am the God who is with you. Oh, my friend, that is a marvel. I am the God who is with you. This great, immeasurable, incomprehensible, infinite being. Moses, I am. Moses, I am with you. It is the fulfillment of the great covenant promise. I will be their God, and they will be my people. I'm not sure it gets any better than that. Many years ago, Allison's dad, I think he was in his mid-80s at the time, and um, Laura at the time would have maybe been four or five years of age. He knew he wasn't going to be around to see much more. So he decided to take... uh, old school, pen in hand, and a bunch of three-ring binder paper and pen a letter to her for her to read on her 16th birthday. I've often wondered to myself, what was going through the man's mind as he wrote that? Maybe some of you have been there. Um, I have thought to myself, if that were me, and I was writing a letter For someone to read later on. What would I say? How would I say it? What would I want to convey? I know you're going to find this hard to believe. But I'd be at a loss for words. I wouldn't know where to begin. Where to end. Or what to say in between it. Go all the way back to Matthew 28. And go all the way back to Christ's final moments on this earth with his disciples. He wants to leave them a letter. He wants to leave them words. He wants to leave them with something that will ring in their ears, ring in their heart, capture their attention, see them through. He wants this just to echo in every fiber of their being just prior to his ascension as he leaves. So what is it? You know it. Right at the end of Matthew 28, what does he give them? And he doesn't need to say anything else. That's it. It's over. Behold, I am with you always. It's actually a poor translation. You get right back into the Greek. The literal is what? I am with you. And this is significant. All the days. Good days, bad days. Happy days, sorrowful, miserable days. Easy, uplifting, encouraging, exhilarating days, and daunting, crippling, discouraging days. Sunny days and cloudy days. I am with you all the days. My friends, isn't that a reason to marvel? That this great God, as we live in anticipation of the day, that this great God has pledged Himself to us. He has made us His people. He has made Him our God. And we have this unwavering certainty, marvel of marvels, that the great I Am is with us. All the days. Our Heavenly Father, we do praise you for the blessed gospel. We praise you for the forgiveness of sins. We praise you for the hope of eternal life. And more so, our Father, we praise you that in the gospel you become ours. We pray that you would enlarge our hearts this day. Cause them to abound in faith and in hope and in love. And in accordance with Paul's prayer penned so many centuries ago, we do pray, our Father, that you would accomplish that good and perfect plan and purpose that you have for us, namely, that in that day we will be glorified, we will be like him. And in that day we will marvel at your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we do pray. Amen.